Welcome back, week 13. Um, very thankful to continue on. So last week um, we were talking about the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, and how that was the pinnacle of the entire old covenant, that that was the consummation of the kingdom of Israel, that God gave David the throne, promised him a royal succession through his sons. With Solomon, the temple is built, God's permanent dwelling place. They have peace. They have the fullness of the promised land. They have the multitude of offspring. Everything that God promised Abraham and Moses had come to pass. And then we ended last night, uh, last week rather, um, talking about how even with all that, the kings still fell short. As glorious as the Davidic covenant was, the kings of Israel fell short. The kingdom was thrown back into turmoil. The glory didn't last very long, and eventually the people were taken into exile. So tonight we are going to talk about the way that the expectation for the Messiah began to build, especially during the period of the kings and during the exile with the prophets. So I'll open us up with prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you uh, that you have just given us uh, the recording of your work throughout history. Um, Lord, you are so very good to us, and I thank you that you have just left us this record that we can study, a testimony to your faithfulness, Lord God, to the way that you keep your word always. Lord, I do pray that you would please be blessing our time this evening as we jump into your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom to extract all that you have to teach us. Father, I pray that you would um, be helping us to apply these truths to our lives, that you'd be building us up in our faith, giving us courage and confidence to stand firm on the truth and on the promises. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 How's it going? Okay. All right. So we're going to be all over the place tonight. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of flipping around the um, prophets. Oops. That's all right. I need one myself, actually. Um, and so... We're starting off in Ezekiel 37. Just to kind of like kick us off. Um, so like I said, what our topic tonight that we're going to kind of survey is the way that the messianic expectation began to build. And we'll be back in Ezekiel 37 later. But I'm just going to read verses 15 through 28 and not comment too extensively on it. But just to kind of get us, you know, this is the theme of what we're talking about tonight. So Ezekiel 37, and Ezekiel was a prophet during the exile. So this is while Israel was out of the land in Babylon. Um, Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another in one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be in that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and will bring them to their own land. And they shall no longer... I'm sorry. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. 
They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Um, I think you're going to see, hopefully, as we go on tonight, so much of the expectations that Israel started to develop are really wrapped up in this prophecy of Ezekiel. All the elements of blessing and promise are there. And we're going to talk about those as we go through tonight. Um, but as we've been talking about throughout this study, um, you know, now we're getting ready to move into the new covenant era. Um, all of the old covenant, the whole thing from Abraham onward is designed to create and forge in God's people the expectation of a better kingdom to come. So the whole, the whole purpose of the Old Covenant was that the people would, by faith, enjoy and appreciate and rejoice over the very real blessings of the Old Covenant while also understanding that this was not God's final plan, that there was more to come, that uh, all of it pointed to something even better. You think of in Hebrews 11, what the author says about Abraham, that Abraham went out to the land, obeyed God, but he was looking for a heavenly kingdom. He was looking for a nation that was uh, made, whose designer and builder is God. And so that was sort of the, the idea in the Old Covenant. The physical blessings were real, they were promised by God, they were significant and meaningful, but they were designed to give people the expectation that God was doing something better. And you see this throughout all the elements of the Old Covenant. Ultimately, none of the blessings under the Old Covenant reconcile people to God. They don't accomplish uh, the rest that we crave. They don't undo what was done in Eden. They don't reestablish the fellowship that sin has broken with God. And you see this, um, the fact that all of the blessings and periods and elements of the Old Covenant, they all lend themselves to this uh, kind of dual purpose of acknowledging their goodness and simultaneously hoping for something better. And you can think of, you know, everything from the uh, exodus from Egypt that, you know, that the people were delivered from slavery, but they weren't delivered from their slavery to sin. That the law was given to them, but they weren't made righteous to keep the law. That they entered into the land of Canaan, but they didn't have the rest that they desired in that land. The tabernacle wasn't a place for all people to come and have fellowship with God, but there were still a lot of regulations and um, you know separation from the people being face-to-face with God. The weekly Sabbath, there wasn't an eternal rest. All of these things, you know, the Day of Atonement having to be repeated year after year, all of these pointed to legitimate, genuine blessing to be thankful for, but also incompleteness, a longing for a greater fulfillment. It was all gracious from God. It was all glorious. It all demonstrated God's mercy and faithfulness. It all blessed God's particular covenant people, but none of it restored fellowship that was broken in Eden. Does that make sense? Everything in the Old Covenant left something to be desired. And that's because ultimately 
The whole point of the Old Covenant was to bring the New Covenant into being. That's what God was doing with this grand plan, that over the course of history, God is working through providence, through people and nations. And as God is doing this work in history, the shape of the New Covenant kind of begins to take form and it becomes more and more sharp in focus and more and more narrow in its focus as well. Because if we think back to the initial promise that God made to Abraham, where he said that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, there's that kind of vague promise that God is going to do something through Abraham and his offspring that is going to bless the entire world. And even further back, an even more vague promise to Adam and Eve in the garden that a seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent. So that's kind of operating in the background of all of this, the expectation of something more that's going to happen. And these expectations began to take a more concrete shape and began to be more narrowly focused, especially when God instituted the king as the covenant head. And we talked about this a little bit last week, and you know, I just want to touch on it a little bit more, the significance of the king as the covenant head, and that not only how that was a fulfillment of God's promises and, and the covenant that he made with Abraham and fulfillment of the law of Moses, but also how the king very specifically shaped the people's expectations of what God was doing and of what God ultimately, what God's ultimate purpose was for the people of Israel. Um, you know, because throughout the Old Covenant, you do have periods and times where the focus is kind of narrowly on one leader or one deliverer like Moses or Joshua or the judges. But like we talked about last week, there was no succession. There was no consistent head over the people until David and his offspring. And so when you have now the anointed king, literally the Messiah, there's this new uh, permanent fixture of this expectation of kind of that one righteous leader who's going to be the head over the people. Um, and in this person, in the king, Israel is presented with a picture of the savior, the deliverer, whom they um, are to expect to come and bring them ultimately into their rest. Uh, the one who is going to defend them, like we talked about last week, defending the holiness of God and his temple, who is going to conquer the enemies and deliver the people into their rest with all the glories of royalty and kingship and all that goes along with that. And this head really did shape the expectations of God's people under the Old Covenant. I want you guys to turn to Psalm 132. Because we'll see that, again, throughout Old Testament history, the um, especially when David and his sons are on the throne, the expectation of the people is so tightly wound up with the king... Psalm 132, uh, verses 10 through 18, we read, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a short oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your, bo of your body I will set on the throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies, then I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And you see in that, you kind of see coming through in these words, the uh, 
the reality of the, the blessing that Israel was looking for was tied up in the king. That God swore to David that he was going to set one of his sons on the throne. That God had made Jerusalem and Zion his dwelling place with the king. That this horn of David was going to sprout up. That God had prepared a lamp for his anointed one. All of these things, you see that there was such a an intense focus on the kingship. The people were looking to the king as their hope of covenant blessing, the future of the kingdom of God. Sorry, Benny. I guess I should put on do not, do not disturb. Anyway, sorry, everybody. Where was I? Um, so God used um, the throne of David to teach the people of what to look for, that righteous, royal representative, that defender that deliverer, I think I mentioned it last week, similar to how the sacrificial system taught the people to look for that substitutionary atonement, that sacrificial blood that was going to cover their sins. So the throne of David, the kingship, taught the people to look for that royal representative. And so it's important to realize that the hope of blessing for Israel, because we look at it and we automatically, kind of by default, think about Christ and the new covenant. But for Israel, the hope of blessing under the king was a present expectation that they had. God promised to Abraham literal offspring, literal land, a literal kingdom, um, and you know a literal dwelling place among the people. And so the people had a present expectation. They didn't just see these promises as kind of a vague distant future hope, but as concrete current realities. And that's going to really help understand, help us to understand the distinctions between the Old and New Covenants and also why the Jews had such a hard time accepting Jesus when he came, why they ultimately did not uh, receive him as their king. So the fact that the people's hope of blessing was tied up literally in the present king. The, when the Davidic throne failed, when the kings were unfaithful and God ultimately punished them, it brought about real, literal curse and devastation. And it was to serve as a reminder that, like I said, as great as the kingship was, it was not God's final plan because the kings failed, the kingdom failed, the people were exiled, they lost their inheritance, and it should have served a reminder that this is not God's final plan and purpose. Yeah, exactly, because it was ruined because of disobedience and sin. God was, and, and God was working in an amazing way through actual, real, lived-out history to teach his people of kind of what this future blessing to the nations was going to look like. They were experiencing this kind of roller coaster of blessing and curse based on the kings and their faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And through it, the people were being taught by example, by history, by experience, what this blessing to the nations was going to look like. And this progressive historical revelation is the mystery of Christ as kind of piece by piece Christ is unveiled throughout the Old Covenant until finally the Incarnation brings the mystery to full light. Does this make sense? Are you guys with me? All right, feel free to interject or comment or ask any questions you guys have. So the people of God, all of them, from the head, from the king at the head on down, failed to keep the covenant, and so full disinheritance and abandonment by God would have been a just punishment because God tied up the blessings of the covenant to obedience. It was to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Get circumcised and circumcise your sons. It was to Moses um, you know, and the people under him to obey all the law that God had given throughout Deuteronomy. If you obey, these will be the blessings. If you disobey, this will be the curse. The people consistently disobeyed, disregarded, and so it would have been perfectly just for God to fully abandon his old covenant people. And this 
in this kind of comes the dilemma of the Old Covenant, because you do have two realities simultaneously going on. On the one side, God made unconditional promises to Abraham and to David that he was going, you know, we talked about this last week, God in Genesis 15, passed through the animal pieces before David. God called the curse down on himself if he failed to deliver on the promises. God swore to Abraham or to David an everlasting throne. And so these unconditional promises compelled God to continue working through Israel and among Israel, even though they were disobedient. But then on the flip side, God had uh, entered into covenant with very real sanctions on the people of Israel, where if they disobeyed, there were real consequences. And God, because of his perfect justice, was compelled to judge Israel for their disobedience. God has to be faithful to those covenant sanctions. He can't you know, back off from them after he had already said, if you disobey, I promise you these will be the consequences. God cannot deny himself. He can't break his own word. And so God had to enter into punishment with them. And you see this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the period of the kings. There is, you know, there's a foreign oppression. There's drought. There's famine. There's plague. There's locusts that come. Ultimately, of course, there is exile from the land. And so you have both of these things working at the same time, those unconditional promises and then the necessity of justice. And that kind of brings up, or, or I should say shapes, the ministry of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. These two realities, and if you keep these two realities in mind, then you're going to I believe you'll find yourself understanding the prophets a lot better, that you have two fundamental, seemingly contradictory elements, that God has made unconditional promises to Israel, and yet the people have been disobedient, and God must judge them. And then you see these both, both of these themes cropping up consistently in the prophets. So the primary role of the prophets were as God's, you could say, covenant litigators or covenant attorneys that uh, Israel had entered into a legal covenant with God, right? And so Israel had actual legal obligations before God, and if they failed to meet those obligations, they would incur penalties. You can think of it in this way. And so the prophets, as God's representative, God's prosecutors, you could say, they would go to the people and tell the people, you have broken the covenant with God. This is how you've broken it. These are the consequences, and you must repent. That was... The, that's the basic role of the prophet, to tell the people that they disobeyed, to warn them about the punishment, and to call them to repentance, informing them that they were in breach of covenant. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. This is a classic passage, and I don't think it's a mistake that this is the very first chapter of the uh, first prophetic book that we have, or you know, the first book of the prophets that we have, because you really get this whole picture in Isaiah chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7, Isaiah writes, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What's he doing there? He's saying, look around, you don't have the blessings that God promised you, you're under curse, you're under judgment, these are the penalties, and then he's going to go on and tell them why all this is happening, why are you suffering these penalties. Down in um, verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. 
I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And so what's he saying here? Um, this is why these curses are coming. You are going through the motions of genuine worship, but you're idolatrous in your hearts. You're not worshiping me from the heart. He goes on later and says that your hands are full of blood. So the people, he points out, this is the punishment. This is curse. This is the reason why you're being cursed, because you disobeyed the covenant in this way. And then in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he ends it there with that call to repentance and promise that if you repent, there will be restoration. You will enter back into blessing. But if you refuse to repent, then it's going to be more curse. And so you see in that the role that the prophets played, that they pointed out the people's sin, they proclaimed God's judgment for sin, called them to repentance, and promised them that if they repented, there would be restoration to blessing. But of course, the people, when the prophets would come and tell them their sin and uh, you know call them to repentance, the people in their rebellion didn't want to listen to it. They didn't want to hear it. And so they would, um, instead of repenting for their unfaithfulness, instead of acknowledging their sin and that it was just that God would punish them, they instead turned against God and blamed God and they accused God of being unfaithful to his covenant. If you guys would flip backwards to Psalm 89, I told you we're going to be turning a lot of pages tonight. And we looked at Psalm 89 last week, and on kind of the first half of it, there's this exposition of the Davidic covenant. This is, it's explaining and commenting on you know, all the implications and the glories of it and the great hope that the people of Israel had for it. But it's a psalm that's written during a period of judgment on the people of Israel. And so if you look at um, Psalm 89, beginning in verse 38... We read this. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached his walls and you have laid stronghold, his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. And so you see that the people, rather than repent, rather than acknowledge that what the prophets were saying is true, that we deserve this, we deserve this curse, we deserve this oppression, we deserve to be conquest by foreign enemies and we need to turn back to God and ask his forgiveness and seek his blessing. Instead, the people would turn to God and say, God has forgotten his covenant. God has abandoned his people. God has broken his word. We were supposed to be blessed. What happened to this everlasting throne? What happened to all the blessings that God promised us? God is the guilty party who has broken covenant. You know, the the constant response, um, you could Think about the book of um, Malachi when, you know, throughout the book, the prophet is saying, this is what the Lord has against you. You have, you know, done this and that. You have robbed God. And the people's constant response is, how have we robbed God? You say, how have we done this? How have we broken the covenant? That's consistently the people's response to the, uh, to the prophets. How have we disobeyed? What did we do to deserve this? They denied their guilt, they denied their unfaithfulness, 
and instead they accused God and they accused his prophets of wrong. And so with the kings continuing to fail and uh, with you know judgment continuing, repentance isn't happening, and ultimately exile and disinheritance occur, then it's at that time the hope kind of begins to shift away from the presence from the present and toward the future. You saw the sons of David continue to fail. Um, you know, hope began to fade away. You know, the the hope surrounding David and his thrones faded, and instead you started to get this idea in this uh, replaced hope of kind of an idealized son of David who was going to uphold the law and do justice and lead the people in righteousness. So, again, you had kind of both at the same time unrepentant, digging in their heels against God, but also a despondency and a, de- and a, you know, a dejected spirit among the people that they had thought that God was bringing them to this glorious kingdom, but instead everything had kind of crumbled around them. And so the prophets were not only to act as God's prosecutors to accuse the people, but they also were to meet this dejected spirit of the people with a proclamation that God still was not finished with the people of Israel, that a greater blessing and a greater birthright still waited for them. And again, you have these two elements of the covenant, the grace works element that because of the people's works, their disobedience, the prophets had to pronounce judgment. But because of God's free grace, because he had bound himself by covenant to bless this people and to bring through them a blessing to the nations, the prophets also proclaimed restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation, and future glory for Israel. So in the midst of these oracles of judgment, as you read the prophets, and these calls to repentance, you also have reminders that God is still their God, that his promises still stand firm, that he is still working in and among the people. Does that all make sense? Turn over to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea right after Daniel. Because you have really a perfect example of this. Both sides of the prophetic ministry, um, really in like one breath with Hosea, addressing both the people's rebellion and the justice they deserved, and also God's free grace, meeting them who had thought that God had cast them off and so who were dejected and despondent. Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, God says, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So you have this harsh judgment, divorce language. You are not my people, and I am not your God. I'm separated from you. But then immediately following, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so you have simultaneously these two things happening side by side. God making this harsh pronouncement, the just pronouncement of judgment. I have cast you off. You are not my people. You have broken my covenant. You're alienated from me. You're under curse. And then immediately following, nevertheless, I'm still going to bless you. I'm going to restore you. You will be my people. You will be my children. You will have an inheritance. You have um, both of these you know, happening side by side. And that really is the tension of the old covenant, the people's disobedience. And so they deserve the just judgment and God's faithfulness to continue to work in spite of them. Turn to Isaiah 54, another great example of this very thing. Isaiah 54 
beginning in verse 4. We read this. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And so you hear that again. You get that picture of the dejected spirit. Israel, even though they had been an adulterous wife and an unfaithful wife, you still get this picture of them as sort of this, you know, lonely, abandoned, helpless wife in the wilderness who is, you know, sort of lost and pitiful. That's how God's people were. Even though they deserved every bit of it, they were still lost, dejected, and pitiful. And then pay attention to what he says after. Verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. You get both. God cast them off. God hid his face. But God is going to restore them. God is going to turn back to them. And so, the again, it's the tension of the Old Covenant that you have the very real judgment that's deserved and that's necessary, but then also the very real expectation of restoration and of mercy. The promises that God made, the covenant word that he spoke to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And to David, I will establish your throne for all eternity. Those promises could not fail. And so God could not ultimately cast off his people until he had completed everything he had promised. Does that make sense? All good? So... You have this budding expectation of the old covenant people as they're suffering judgment and going through trials and suffering exile. This budding expectation that God is going to do something else. That God's not done with them. The prophets keep telling them God is not done with them. And so you have several themes that sort of mark this expectation as it progresses. Um, The first thing this expectation that a righteous descendant of David is going to rule on the throne. Turn to Isaiah 9. Very, very familiar passage, a familiar promise, um, but a really significant one to the people of Israel as we talk about the this growing expectation of this you know, this anointed king, this Messiah, this deliverer, there is literally the expectation of a king, of a son of David, who's going to get back onto the throne and actually lead the people. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, you guys know it. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so you have this promise, this expectation that God is going to raise up a son of David, sit him back on the throne of David. Um, And remember, we talked last week as we closed out. When the exile happened, when Babylon conquered Judah and carried them off into exile, the end of 2 Kings specifically makes note that the Davidic line did not die out. the, The king was not executed. In fact, he, you know, was treated pretty well in Babylon. And so the door was left open for this expectation that another son of David is going to get back on that throne in Jerusalem. And so because there's that expectation and because God's covenant with David is an everlasting covenant, because he promises 
this eternal throne to David. You have the prophets promising now this coming king who is going to be of the offspring of David. And like it says, he's going to um, establish justice and righteousness. He's going to rule in, you know, according to God's law in a way that no king previously had been able to do. He was going to do what no descendant of David had been able to do. And you even see with the titles with which he is called, where when we look back in hindsight, we can understand pretty clearly who this is talking about. But when you hear it in the moment, even the idea of God physically you know, taking on flesh and ruling as the son of David was not conceivable. It was not even anywhere in the people's mind. Um, but even the titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, it indicates that this son of David is going to be far greater than any other king who had reigned, that he was going to be wise according to God's law, that he was going to rule on behalf of God and be a great representative of God, that he would establish peace, bring the people into rest, all the rest of it. That was the expectation. If you turn over to Jeremiah 33, you get um, a similar sort of promise. Jeremiah 33, a great chapter when we talk about the um, expectation of the Messiah. Chapter 33, verses 14 through 18. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So a lot of the same thing, right? This king who was going to execute justice and righteousness, who would ensure security in Judah and in Israel, who would, um, you know, again, that constant theme of delivering the people into their rest. There's going to be peace from the enemies. There's going to be security. You're going to be able to worship God faithfully. Um, you know, he even talks about the Levitical priests at the end there. And so you have both this kingly office and the priestly office featuring very significantly in this expectation as well. There's this um, expectation and promise that God would raise up a king who would actually deliver the people to the rest that they craved, right? So that's the... Um, one of the first things that you know to take note of the shape of the expectation that God was cultivating in his people. Um, secondly, there was the expectation that the people would return to the land. They had been exiled. And you know the the land of Canaan is just such a prominent feature of the old covenant. The old covenant in so many ways centers around that land. You know, even to this day that land is significant to the Jews because you have, you know, that was the first promise made to Abraham that God was going to give him the land of his sojournings. You had the people, the, you know, kind of climax of deliverance in the Old Testament was the people returning to the land of Canaan after having been uh, rescued from Egypt the people settling in the land, building God's house in the land. And so the exile is just such a devastating blow. And you can understand how God's covenant people, guilty as they were, could, could just have that dejected spirit and could wonder, God, what are you doing? Where are you? What happened to these promises? And so one of the chief expectations of the people as they were languishing under judgment was a return to the land. Um, continuing in or remaining in Jeremiah 33 verses 10 and 11 read thus says the Lord 
in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall again be heard the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring the as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. That expectation that God is going to actually bring them back into the promised land. If you flip over to Ezekiel 37, where we began tonight, Verses 21 and 22, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. Again, I'm going to bring them back to the land in Israel. They will return. God is not done with them in that place. So this also helped to form Israel's expectations of the work that God still had to do with them. Another one um, that's also mentioned there in Ezekiel 37 is the reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms. Remember the episode in Ezekiel 37 that we read begins with Ezekiel doing this object lesson of taking these two sticks and putting them together. One of them represents Israel, the other represents Judah. God's going to bring them back together. And then we just read it there in this portion. No longer are they going to be two kingdoms under two kings, but they're going to be one kingdom, one head, one king. This was again another, the the fact that the kingdom split, it was kind of a pre-exile before the exile actually happened. This was a clear sign of curse and judgment that God had joined all the offspring of Israel together as one people. And so for that which God had joined together to be separated, for that divorce to happen, was a clear curse. It was a clear sign of judgment. Even from the early days of the Davidic kingship, it was, you know, after Solomon, the kingdom was never whole. It was a clear failure of the kingship and a clear indication of curse, even while David's sons still sat on the throne in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So for the people to be reunited under one head, that was a big deal. That was an indication that God was going to bless them and restore them to that state of blessing. And then there was also the uh, expectation, this promise that began to sort of form of the inclusion of the nations in the covenant people. Turn to Micah chapter 4. Now, the inclusion of the nations, this is interesting because the from the beginning of God's covenant with Abraham, when God said that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, there is working and operating in the background this expectation of a global people of God, of you know the entire earth being filled with God's covenant people, that it's not just for Israel, but all the nations are going to be blessed by God. However, because so much of the old covenant and the nation of Israel was focused on holiness and separation from that which was unclean, that was kind of the the testimony of Israel was that they were separated from all the uncleanness and the paganism of the nations. Because of that, this you know, uh, global, transnational work that God was doing ultimately was very much pushed to the periphery. It didn't fe- uh, feature prominently throughout most of the Old Covenant. You, know, you have hints of it here and there with Ruth and others you know, who kind of come in from the outside. But generally speaking, it was kind of pushed and on the periphery. But during this period of exile, during the period of judgment, when the the people were beginning to 
be prepared to receive this Messiah, this greater son of David, the transnational reality of God's new covenant began to uh, feature prominently once again. The fact that Israel was existed to bless the nations ultimately began to show up. I'm in the wrong place. Micah 4, beginning in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And so you have this picture of the nations gathering together. And if you remember, even when God gave the law, he spoke of the nations are going to see when you walk in holiness and in righteousness and in obedience, the nations will see that and they will flock to you. They'll see the goodness of God in the holiness of his people and they will come to you. But the people never lived up to that. They never were that light to the nations that God had intended them to be. And so now God, and there's plenty of passages like this in Isaiah and elsewhere in the prophets where God is cultivating in them this expectation that I am going to bless the nations through you. All the nations are going to come to me and be in my covenant and be under my headship. That God is going to fulfill that promise to bless the nations. That he's going to draw people to himself by his own holiness and his righteousness. He's going to gather the nations to himself. And so that became a very, once again, featured element of this messianic expectation that was being cultivated in the people. And ultimately, the expectation was that hope for rest, that final consummation. You know, we talked about the consummation of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon and how amazing it was, but again, it did not last. The people still longed for a greater consummation, a perfected kingdom. And that's exactly what the prophets told them God was going to do. Turn to Isaiah chapter 60. And again, we can go all over the place. You know, we're doing a real brief survey of all these elements, but I hope you guys are kind of getting the picture of what God wanted his people to be looking for. Because that's what God was doing. He was teaching Israel to look for the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to the incarnation and Christ's arrival, but there's a reason why in the opening of John's gospel, he says that the word came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They had been taught to expect this king so that they'd be able to recognize him when he came and receive him as their king and to enter into his kingdom. But ultimately, as we're going to talk about, the people missed it. Um, but Isaiah chapter 60 Verses 1 through 5. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. You get more and more this picture, and especially, you know, you, you, know, you could read through the last several chapters of Isaiah, and you get this 
picture of promise of God that he is bringing about this consummated kingdom, this restored paradise is coming. And so um, all of these hopes kind of combined to create this expectation that God still had a great inheritance for his covenant people, that he had a birthright set aside for them that they had yet to attain, that there was still something more. Even though they had gotten the land and the kingship and the temple and all the rest of it, there was still more to it than just that. And yet, all of this was still being proclaimed as a mystery. You know, again, it's easy for us to look at all this. We know that it's fulfilled in Christ, and so we kind of jump straight to there. But for the people during this time, this still was hidden. It wasn't clear. And you'll notice that pretty much everything we read is still talking about physical, tangible blessings for the most part that God was going to do. Because that's what the people of Israel knew. That was their context. That's what they understood. That's the language God was speaking to them were these physical Put your hands on them, signs, types, uh, symbols that were pointing forward to something more. And so, yes, they understood, you know, they, they, they understood the terms that God was speaking in, but they failed in large part to grasp, just like they had failed before, that all of these were pointing to something greater. They were not meant for the... The people's eyes weren't meant to dwell on the physical blessings right in front of them, but they were to look at them, give thanks for them, enjoy them, and understand that God was calling them to cast their gaze forward into the future to a greater fulfillment. And so even though Israel did return to the literal, physical land of Israel after the exile, even though they rebuilt the temple, they never attained that same glory that they had before the exile. You know, even it's either in Ezra or Nehemiah when the, the exiles returned to Israel and some of the people who were alive before the captivity were weeping when they were rebuilding the temple because it just wasn't the same as it was before. The, the glory had departed and wasn't coming back in, uh, to the physical land of Israel. So even the literal, physical fulfillment of these promises that God made during the time of exile, they didn't live up to the expectation. Like everything else in the Old Covenant, they didn't live up to the expectation. It wasn't the rest, the consummation, the intimacy that the people craved. And yet, even with all that, just like when the kings failed, the sacrificial system failed, and all the rest of it failed, the people struggled to see beyond the physical promises that God had made. They struggled to grasp that God was doing something far greater than what they had experienced before. And the reality, the truth, is that what God was doing in these promises that he was making was setting the stage to do something different and better than what he had done with Abraham and Moses and David. If you guys turn to Jeremiah 31, the you know classic promise of the new covenant, that what God was trying to get the people to see is that he, you know, all these promises, all this expectation was meant to stir up in the people the expectation and hope for something better and something different, something that was, you know, so much more glorious than what they had attained under the Old Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
So you have this promise that God is going to do something, and he says right in there, I'm going to do something that's not like the covenant that I made with your fathers. So he's doing something that is distinct from the old covenant, which we understand to begin with Abraham and be expanded on with Moses and David. Those three covenants, Abraham, Moses, David, make up the old covenant. And God says here to Jer- through Jeremiah, I'm going to do something unlike the old covenant. It's going to be different. He was going to... And the glorious thing is that it's through the old covenant that God brings into existence and to fruition the new covenant, the better covenant. And it's better, as the author of the Hebrew says, because it is enacted on better promises. The covenant is not just going to deliver a law from on high to you know, teach the people about God's righteousness and the righteousness he expects. But this covenant promises to actually change the hearts of people so that they can obey the law, that the people themselves will be made righteous, not just told what righteousness is. That God was not going to require continual atonement for sin like he did under the old covenant, but he says, I will forgive their iniquities and their transgressions. I will remember no more. That once for all, God was going to forgive sins and not require this constant flow of blood sacrifice to cover the sins. That they weren't going to simply know things about God, know information about God, or have a relationship with God where he was dwelling among them, but that they would intimately know God because he would dwell in them. That they will all know me intimately from the least of them to the greatest. And so they weren't going to need these covenant mediators like Moses, who would take the you know information from God and mediate it to the people, but rather God himself was going to be the mediator. He was going to enter into them and change them from the inside out and teach them from their hearts. That the people would be the temple. Wouldn't be an external temple they would gather around. They themselves would be the temple. That's what God was promising to do. This is what God was setting the stage for. Something new, something different, something better than what he had done through Abraham, Moses, and David. It was promised and foreshadowed and typified through those men in their covenants, but those were not the new covenant because the old covenant, even with Abraham, could not change the people's hearts. It couldn't make the people righteous. And so even the promises that God was making during the exiles to form this expectation, the return to the land, it foreshadowed the and typified the fact that you know the new covenant inheritance isn't just going to be this land, it's going to be the whole earth. God's people inherit the world under the new covenant. The union of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom being brought together under one head foreshadows and typifies Jews and Gentiles being brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, something that the people in Jesus' day could not comprehend how the Jewish Messiah could be the savior and the covenant head of non-Jewish people without Gentiles becoming Jews first. That's the whole man. So much of the New Testament is answering that question. That's the whole deal with circumcision. How can the Jewish Messiah be the head of a non-Jewish people unless they themselves become Jews? The people didn't understand that even in the reunion of the two kingdoms, even in the you know promise of the nations being gathered together under one covenant head, was looking forward to the Gentiles being included, not by virtue of being circumcised and becoming Jews and entering into the old covenant, but by virtue of a new covenant, where God would create a new covenant people by his spirit through free grace from Jesus Christ. But the Jews continued to stumble over all this. They just couldn't see it because all that they could see was this idealized version of what they already had, the idealized version of a son of David who was reigning in Jerusalem, who was going to, you know, the people were going to have their sovereignty, they were going to have peace from the other nations. 
all they could see was just an idealized version of what God had already done under David and Solomon instead of what God was actually doing, which was cosmic in scale, reconciling the whole of creation to himself and returning the people to a new creation, a new paradise, an intimate fellowship through a new covenant head and a new covenant and a new kingdom. Anything else, you guys? Any questions? All right. Next week, we'll start to get into the bones of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. And we are just in awe of your glorious plan, Lord. It is just amazing that you have threaded this beautiful tapestry throughout history by your providence and raising up nations and tearing them down and lifting up individuals and working through them and generation after generation, Lord, you are building this glorious kingdom centered in and around Christ Jesus. And Lord, how amazing it is that we stand on this end of history, getting able to look back and see what you've done, that we can experience the rule and reign of Jesus Christ right now in our own day. And we have power from that reign because our King has poured his spirit out on us, has made us new creatures, and has equipped us to go forth and press forward the boundaries of the kingdom until indeed they encompass the whole heavens and earth and dominion is seen over all creation. Lord, I thank you that you are doing this marvelous, incredible work. And I pray, Lord, that we would be all the more willing to be your servants, to be your ministers, your ambassadors, your agents in this world, to do the bidding of our Lord and King, our covenant head, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.